Hello, happy new year, happy Black History Month, and welcome to season two of Black Stage Podcast. Yes, we are back, new episodes, new year. I'm super excited uh, to just be able to engage with our amazing audience again uh, for a second season. We are doing so many different things. Uh, We're being more creative. We're being more intentional uh, with bringing you all some of the best stories that we can possibly bring. Uh, Season one was extraordinary, but 2020 was kind of dark. And so hopefully 2021 can be better. Uh, We can seek more hope. We got a new president in office, you all. Uh, We have a new vice president in office. Um, We're still navigating a global pandemic, so that hasn't changed, but we do have a vaccine. So let's see where this thing goes. But at the end of the day, um, we are here because you all want us here. And we are so grateful that we have been able to engage such extraordinary listeners who are looking to hear new and impactful stories. So without further ado, uh, episode one of season two. This person is someone who is very special to me. Uh, Natasha S. Alford is her name. She is the vice president uh, and senior correspondent for digital content at The Grio. She also is now a CNN analyst uh, doing all the things that she needs to do in primetime TV every single morning. And so I am I'm so excited for you all to listen to someone who just is so passionate about her craft, but also knows who she is and is looking to serve her audience in various innovative, impactful, and intentional ways. So excited for it all. Um, I, I'm, I'm happy to be back. I'm happy to, to be doing this podcast. And, and let's go. This is the Black Stage. So we are here with Natasha S. Alford. I am super excited to have you on the podcast today. We have been longtime friends uh, at this point, longtime New York friends on this New York grind. And I am so excited to actually um, be able to engage with you on this platform. How are you doing today? I'm great. It's so good to see you. And also you have a great podcast voice. Like I I know we've, we've been cool for a minute, but it's nice to like, it's nice to get this on the record recorded. I'm like, okay. You know, I mean, so look, <laughs> so look, it's so funny. You know, I, I, I know this is not about me. This is all about you. But like <laughs> people have been asking me to do a podcast for like, you know, eight, nine years, do a podcast, do a podcast. And I literally re- would have refused to do a podcast because I was insecure about my voice. Um, I used to be made fun of when I was in high school. They used to call me Prince. They used to do the little ooh uh sound in the hallways because i had this very very high pitched voice and so you know for me to do this podcast it was like okay let's go out of this uh comfort zone so to hear you miss vp um because i didn't even go through your credentials um uh that's that's definitely a compliment i appreciate you i love that look at the universe just affirming that you're doing the right thing you know you know i think you know it's just you know it's all about evolution and you know everything kind of comes to fruition but i will say um, I did do the radio at Howard University, so I should have known that there was something there uh, that was going to affirm me, <laughs> affirm me, and and moving forward in this. But um, 
But look, so, you know, Natasha S. Alford, the vice president of digital content and senior correspondent for the GRIO, icon, uh, person who has done so many incredible things and a champion of Black-owned media. Um, there are so many different things that I want to talk to you about today. Um, it seems like the world is on fire, but when is the world not on fire? But it seems like, especially during this time, um, there's just so much going on. But before we kind of dive into what is actually the news of the day, um, I would love to really kind of talk to you about your journey. Um, you are a champion for Black journalists. You're a champion of Black creators. You're a champion for women. You are a champion of the intersectionality of everything, which I would love to dive into uh, even more specific as we kind of go through your journey. But can you tell me how you got your start and tell me what kind of got you from point A to point B to becoming Natasha S. Alford? Wow. So that is a question with many different layers. <laughs> and honored to be asked it because it, it's nice to have a journey. I think sometimes when we think of success, there's so many people who want to get to this particular point um, or they wanna have a testimony not realizing that you have to actually live to be tested along the way. And so it's been a journey of um, trying different things, changing lanes. Uh, journalism actually is more like a second career for me I spent four years in the education space. Before that, I did a stint at a hedge fund. So I, I lived a little bit before I finally got around to doing this, which is what I believe is part of my calling. And, um, but I think what was central to everything was this idea that I really valued truth. I really valued uh, the power of the spoken word and the power of education. And so journalism does that for me. It allows me to basically be like a teacher, to explain what's happening in the news, to explain what's happening in people's lives or allow them to, to tell their own stories. And through that, you, you hope that it changes the world in some way. Um, but yeah, the, the journey to get there was not a straight line. I went to public schools. Um, I did write that I wanted to be a journalist in my, my college, you know, application essay, but the, where I went to school, they did not have journalism as a major, it was a liberal arts program. And so um, I ended up doing more social science, political, uh, cultural studies. And despite many years of activism and like, focus on the black community and women's rights, I ended up being recruited by a hedge fund. <laughs> so very cliche, uh, very cliche. Although it was not the standard like corporate hedge fund, it was very anti-corporate in terms of the culture. And that was part of what drew me there. So, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't speak about that chapter of my life with as much shame as I used to. I think it served a purpose. And I, I thought I knew what I wanted to do when I got there, but it became very clear that I wasn't really invested in the mission. Like I needed work that I felt was changing people's lives. So what did I do? I went into education, seemed like a no brainer, right? Back in 2010, around that time, 09, 010, education was, it was like the thing, like it was hot in these streets. People were actually talking about it as if, it was something that could be changed. And I had come from a public school system that really felt broken. And so it felt like, wow, there's a movement happening to change education, obviously way more complicated than that, right? Uh, anytime you talk about reform, 
but it did uh, allow me to really test whether you know I was going to keep golden handcuffs on and making a lot of money or if I was willing to walk away from that. And that's the benefit of being young <laughs> is that you can walk away, right. you know, if you, if you really, because you, you think to yourself, I have time on my hands. If I want to do this corporate thing, technically I could go back to it. So I went into education, you know, I made copies, I crossed kids across the street, packed lunches, like it was very humbling. I'm pretty sure, I, I think it was like a $60,000 pay cut, $65,000 pay cut, but um, loved the work, you know, and really learned so much and grew a lot in terms of character and leadership, eventually becoming a classroom teacher, teaching in Washington, DC. I got recruited to go into the education policy space. So that's when I got a taste of politics, mm -hmm. how rough that gets. Mm -hmm. And listen, politics, just because it's in education, it's no less rough and tumble. In fact, I think it's you know even more intense. But it was at that time in my life that uh, I was going back to my five-year college reunion and Oprah was speaking that year. And so was Soledad O'Brien. Talk about like the universe smacking you in the face. The double whammy. The double whammy. I'm like, wow, Oprah Winfrey and Soledad O'Brien just happened to be speaking the year that I have to go back to Harvard for my reunion. And what was the message? Of course, answering your calling. So I'm in the middle of applying to business school. Again, still very much like being influenced by what is the track that people say is successful and safe. Um, and I was like, hmm, maybe I should finally like apply to journalism school. I never got to formally study it. Study it. I never got to pursue it. Um, and and I, I, I felt I was watching TV often and seeing people doing it and being like, I should be doing that. You know, you just have that feeling like, damn, I'm watching other people live my dream. And, there, and there's just so much like, it's like cognitive dissonance. You're like, something doesn't feel right about this. So I applied without any formal journalism experience. Northwestern let me in, God bless them. Talked uh, <laughs> them into giving me, you know, a little extra scholarship money. And uh, of course it was a black woman who looked out for me in the financial aid office. Shout out to her, she knows who she is. And that just like changed my life. At, at I'm pretty sure I was at like 28 at that point, 28, 27. And um, at a time when it felt that maybe people were settling down or like coming into their adulthood, I was blowing everything up again and being like, okay, you're gonna go into journalism where people tell you you're gonna be broke forever. And you're gonna be trying to build this career where, you know, very few people kind of like make it to the top, top and get that recognition. But it didn't matter. The, the joy that I felt at being like, this is what I want to do. That first interview, that first byline, you know, the first time you have to go in the street and get somebody to talk to you. It was just exhilarating. It was thrilling. And I was like, this is what I'm supposed to do. So yeah, here we are six years later. It's been a pretty cool ride. And um, being VP of a black owned news brand is so powerful in this time. I'm so, so glad that I'm here in this time. And um, yeah, we, we are so necessary. The work that we do is so necessary. And even outside of the black owned media space, you know, being able to be on CNN um, 
and to represent us in that space. I think every morning of purpose. Yeah, it's been every morning lately with uh, all the the stuff that's happening in the news. So, anyways, I think that's like a a pretty fair summary. But there's a a lot more that it, happens. It's a fair it's a fair summary. But you know you know you know how we do. We're gonna rewind really quickly. Um, oh, okay. On, on, the, on the on the VHS tape, and and I really want to kind of talk to you in particular uh, about identity. Um, that this is something that you have really spoken out about, and you actually were speaking out about identity um, in your at a time in your career where people were like, well, you know, we're not supposed to be a part of the story, right? We're not supposed to include ourselves. It's supposed to be about the participant or the issue or whatever we're reporting on. And you were saying like, no, there is intersectionality with with this, right? And I really want to talk to you about um, being Afro Latinx and and representing that demographic in a way that that has really kind of transformed a lot of conversations um, in, in so many different ways, but in particular, um, when we're talking about the African diaspora and like, what does it mean to be black and what does it mean to represent in this country um, at a time where, you know, it seems like identity is, on a, is, is an assault, right? Like if you bring up anything about what makes you you, um, that makes anyone in a power uh, structure feel uncomfortable, um, it's like, no, 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 you can't, you can't can't talk about that. You can't bring that up. You can't bring that piece in you, a piece of you in there. And I, and I, and I, and I want to kind of like bridge that with kind of like the educator that um, you are still, um, but then in the formal way, because in, in reality, you have really educated a lot of people. What does it mean to be Afro Latino, Afro Latinx um, in this country at this time? And what does that, how do you define that for yourself? Can you talk to me a little bit about that um, and why it's important, why it has been continuously important for you to kind of speak out um, about this representation? Yes. Yeah, so I have no qualms about identity reporting or coverage because I, I feel that the reason why some people are uncomfortable with it is because white and male has been the default. So there, there hasn't been a need to necessarily look at things from a different perspective, right? So it's like, well, why are we talking about race? Why are we talking? Well, you know, if all the stories are told from one perspective or the storyteller is always the same voice, then this feels unnecessary. You're not necessarily catching the biases or the omissions. So I don't apologize for that. Um, I do think it was a shift for me to go from journalist to including myself in some of the story. I actually was very opposed to it. And it took a mentor to just kind of, you know, snap me out of that. Like, girl, don't care what people say. Cause we want to <laughs> talk anyway. So there's that. Um, but people are invested in the why, you know, why are we doing this report? What's behind it? And who is the storyteller? So it initially was uncomfortable, but um, this work uh, actually started a while back. I actually wrote my senior college thesis on Afro-Latina reggaeton artists in, in Puerto Rico. Like it was very specific. Uh, I could not find much academic work around it, but there were scholars out there and there are people who've been doing this work for years. It's just they may not necessarily be in the mainstream or the mainstream is catching up to them, right? So I also say that like my work is part of a collective. Mm -hmm. I'm honored that, you know, people are recognizing it, but it's very much like there are people who paved the way before I even got there. 
Um, but yeah, in 2008, I wrote that thesis. And then in 2018, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about the intersection of technology and identity and how so many people who had been erased, particularly those who fall under this Afro-Latinx umbrella, which a lot of people are still debating who's Afro-Latino, who's not, mm -hmm. um, we, they went to Instagram and was like, all right, so you wanna keep showing the same image of this is what a Latino is, mm -hmm. well, this is what Latinos actually look like. <laughs> and you see beautiful black <laughs> mm -hmm. of every shade, you know, with afros and, and locks or curly hair. It just wasn't uh, the typical image. And there was so much power in that. Like right. it, it, there was so much power in, um, in challenging what the dominant culture was showing. So I wrote this, this uh, opinion piece for the New York Times, um, many thanks to Janae Desmond Harris, who uh, is a Howard grad also. Actually. Yes, that's yes, Howard. <laughs> yes. We are and, everywhere. Mm -hmm, everywhere. And so she um, was gracious enough to accept my pitch and run this story. Uh, the, the series that's been getting a lot of attention lately is the one that I did for the Pulitzer Center. And that was in the midst of this huge revolution that was happening in Puerto Rico. We were seeing all this news coverage about protesters who were ousting the governor mm -hmm. and I just I kept looking at it and I'm like there's a story that's not being caught by the mainstream you keep talking about Puerto Ricans as one group when in reality just like Americans right there are many different groups and communities there and I know black Puerto Ricans you know there's got to be someone doing anti-racist work there mm -hmm. there's got to be somebody who is trying to grapple with this issue of racism in a society that really paints itself as a racial utopia and says, no, we all don't get, we all get along. That's y'all problem, right? Like you guys in the continental US, y'all have the race issue, but we Latinos, we're all family. And I knew that that wasn't necessarily the full story. So we ran a series of great stories and I just, uh, produced this documentary, which is now on Amazon Prime. .com. Natasha is working. <laughs> <laughs> the bag is being secured. <laughs> it was definitely a passion project. You know, it's, I, I don't get paid to make documentaries necessarily. I, I my primary job is content at the Grio, um, managing content, but this, this was a story that really needed to be told and the people were just amazing. So yeah, that, that's a little bit about how the work got started. But in terms of interrogating Blackness, um, Blackness, it, this is like, as it seems so like basic kindergarten, but people forget just how diverse Blackness is. <laughs> and when we talk about Afro-Latinos, you know, we often hear a stereotype of they either deny their Blackness completely and they, they hate being Black, <laughs> or they're just like hyper Afrocentric, right? They're, uh, they have head wraps and they wear beads. And I think it's like both of those miss nuance if you're only presenting people in one way, right? There's a lot that happens in between and uh, yeah, it deserves, it deserves some unpacking. You, you mentioned uh, 2018 a couple of times. Um, and I, I want to kind of acknowledge how extraordinary 2018 was. I don't know how you survived it. You were, 
I'm doing a documentary, writing op-eds in the New York Times, um, and in particular, getting this like viral interview with Omarosa and 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 having that on every single platform in the world. Um, I want to talk to you about meeting your moment. Um, you know, there I feel like there have been multiple times in your career uh, that you have truly met the moment. Um, and I recall a story, I watched many interviews that you did before uh, doing this interview with you and just to prep. And in particular, you talked about like, you know, the transition between like, you know, doing the local reporting job and getting the griot job and what that looked like. And then, you know, get 2018 and like, you know, getting, uh, what was it, NABJ's uh, Young Journalist of the Year. Yeah, Emerging Journalist, that was an Emerging journalists of the year and just like really just staying the course and doing the work and like literally seeing how, you know, the yellow brick road of opportunities and privileges kind of kept going away. And it wasn't like you were like hungry or searching for that. You were just doing the work. Um, and I really want you to talk about that because there are a lot of people um, whether wanting to become a journalist or whether they want to work in media in some capacity or just, you know, wanting to be successful, they don't realize, Natasha, how much time and work and failure and and, and how much goes into that. Can you talk to me a, a little bit about that and what like meeting the moment means to you and how you really have been able to kind of like really put that nail down and hammer it every single time, uh, you know, that door opens up or every time you see or have a vision for something. I love that phrase, meeting the moment. It's great uh, because yes, life is very much about creating your own luck, you know, and um, it can be tempting to chase pedigree thinking that if I just get this stamp of approval, uh, this will fix everything <laughs> or this will open every door. Um, when in reality, you can, you can manifest certain things for your life, you know, um, and, and, and maybe that's part of it. Maybe working for a certain company is part of your, your, your journey, going to a certain school that might be part of it, but that's not all of it. Um, so yeah, so, so meeting the moment for me, has been very much about having an entrepreneurial spirit. When I came to the Grio, I'd left television news uh, as I was a local t a local TV news reporter who had you know my own videographer, my own uh, set of editors, and I worked in a traditional type of newsroom. And the Grio.com was a website, so I would go on YouTube and refresh and teach myself like how to edit video on Adobe. I would just watch these videos. Uh, I learned some of this in grad school. I learned most of it in grad school, but I was out of practice because I didn't have to do it in TV news mm -hmm. and, and retaught myself how to edit and uh, hit the ground running, you know, uh, looking, looking through those business cards of who did I meet at this NABJ conference? And, and one of those people happened to be the managing editor at the Grio. And, and pitched myself as someone who could be a video reporter and who could really just do it all. And they were not looking for a video reporter. They had not posted a video reporter job, right? But again, it's that entrepreneur mindset of, I can hustle, you know, I can, I'm, I'm multi-talented and people will get more for their money, you know, if they hire me. Um, and so that helped me get my foot in the door and essentially create 
my own lane within the griot and to learn from a business standpoint, what it means to run a brand uh, from a talent standpoint, right? It's so much more than just being on camera and being cute. Um, and also <laughs> the, the fundamentals of reporting, you know, uh, always seeking because it was a small, a smaller digital brand. Um, it's not like working for the New York Times, which is this behemoth of journalism. I would have to go out and go to conferences, go to the investigative reporters and editors conference, um, you know, go to NABJ to make sure that I was refreshing my skills and keeping up with what was going on in the industry. So I was thinking like a mini CEO without like anyone asking me to, to be a CEO, <laughs> you know, and, um, and thinking about marketing myself, right? Like I just started my Instagram. I'm just the people's journalist and like, that's what it is now. And that's what it is. And, and people will buy in if, if you're authentic and they like your work. It's like that. We rock it with you, you know. So that became a thing. And, and there's an audience that, that cares about the work. And I'm just like blown away every day. So, yes, meeting the moment requires that. And um, even with, you know, the, the Breakfast Club story, I think it resonates because there was so much hustle involved in, in, in trying to get an interview with somebody when the window had closed and you just thought like, oh, it's over, it's too late to interview her. But there were so many other moments like that in my career where you could have easily just been like, eh, I'm not gonna ask one more question or uh, they said I couldn't go into the room. The Donald Trump story is another one that stands out where I was told that I could come to a Donald Trump presser, but I couldn't ask any questions. And at the very end, there was just this opening. I saw one other person do it and I just jumped up and asked a question as we were supposed to be leaving and was able to you know, get something, right? So it's, it's about um, hustle, it's about courage, and it's about consistency. And I really think that people reward that. Um, but you also have to know like wh what you're working for, what, what's your goal uh, and, and sell that as well. Put that in front of people. The Pulitzer Afro Latino series, I pitched that. They were not looking for that, but there was value in it and people responded to that. So a lot of this is self-awareness too and, and knowing what you have to offer and believing in it, whether people see that or not. Um, and that takes time. It may take time. Maybe you're just born with it, <laughs> but it's okay. I'm just here to say it's okay if it takes time. Uh, it's okay if overnight success for you is five or 10 years or your second career, uh, because ultimately when you do get there, you, you're, you're going to have a lot to do and then you have to sustain it. <laughs> yeah. And you got to sustain it. That's the piece. It's like, once you get there, it's not just like, okay, and everything was good. It's like, no, you still are working. You're just working differently. <laughs> um, new levels, new devils, new problems, you know? So just enjoy the journey. Natasha, you mentioned courage. Um, and I, I, I do want to ask you, um, where do you source your courage from? Um, because when you are in front of a president who is not uh, 
in particularly in favor of journalists asking questions. Um, or if you do have a, a closed door uh, in front of you when you have been waiting all day to interview a particular person, or if you are interviewing someone of influence and power, and there is those uh, assigned questions that are given to you and you can't, you're not supposed to ask what you know everyone wants to know. Um, how do you source your courage in order to really champion the people and to champion truth? I think some of it is inherited. <laughs> so it's I in the sauce. It's in the sauce. <laughs> I give full credit to my father you know, <laughs> being uh, audacious and rebellious. And I hear stories. He tells me stories now about himself as a child. I was like, oh, well, that makes so much sense. Like, no wonder, you know, I turned out this way. Um, but yes, seeing my father who you know, is such a hard worker. Uh, he was in the army for 10 years. And I, when he got out, he worked every job you could imagine from painting houses to uh, custodial work and never complained and just, you know, showed up for work every day, right? Um, he's old school. And uh, he grew up during the civil rights movement and he saw the contradictions of America and the two Americas that existed, one that was promised, and then the reality of what Black America, uh, or what America was for Black Americans. So seeing him be honest about that, he never tried to hide that from me, I think gave me courage to also be somebody who just, who, who calls out injustice and, and who speaks truth, and who feels that it is my obligation to do so. Um, it's my obligation because I know that there are rooms I have access to that there are so many people who don't have access to those rooms. And I feel as though I'm representing for every single person who's not in the room with me. But there are moments when I, I'm afraid, you know, there are moments where I question myself and I feel as though I have some really great mentors. Like I'm just surrounded by people who, who are courageous and I draw that strength from them. Um, Byron Allen, the CEO of Entertainment Studios and the owner of The Grio, I, I have learned so much from him. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, uh, not just through him suing people. The uh, owner of the Weather Channel as well. <laughs> all the way to the Supreme Court. But yes, he is the owner of the Weather Channel. And yeah, seeing him uh, take on these big powers, uh, I think you can't help but draw inspiration from that. You know, where, wherever you fall in terms of what you think about these cases, it's the idea of like, I, I believe that I deserve something, right? Or I believe that I need to speak up for this particular right and I'm going to do it, whatever the cost is. So when you have that person as your boss, it's kind of like, he not afraid of y'all. You know what I mean? I'm not afraid. Like, <laughs> you know, what are you going to do to me? Like, you kind of got to have that attitude. Um, obviously with, you know, humility and coupled with like intelligence, right? You got to know what it is that you're talking about and not just be contradictory just to be out here starting fights um, or challenging people off of nothing. Um but yes, I think people like him and many of the others who I, I've learned from and I've just watched and observed, they give me the, the confidence to go out there every day and to try, you know? So yeah, I think that's where I get some of it from. 
incredible. That's incredible. I, I do want to talk to you a little bit in particular, uh, particularly about uh, Black-owned media. Um, I, I'm really curious on your, your take on the state of Black-owned media. Um, we've seen and heard so many different things. Um, and, you know, there have been a lot of questions around uh, relevance. There have been questions around um, capacity or lack of financing for, for Black-owned media um, or support. Um, I just would love to hear some of your thinking around, like, where do you see Black-owned media going and how do you see it being uh, front row center to uh, the future of how we tell our stories? Yeah, so Black-owned media, just to be clear, has played an essential role in the Black political struggle in this country. Um, we, we had to create our own media because we were not welcome in other media spaces and our stories were not being told. And part of us getting like rights <laughs> was literally like these stories had to be told. Um, we talk about, uh, you know, some of the protests that happened during the, uh, the bus boycott, Montgomery bus boycott, or um, the, the, those images of, of firefighters turning hoses on children. These are moments where the media helped to change public perception and to, to galvanize people to do something and to galvanize those in power who maybe were, you know, trying to sweep things under the rug to actually deal with issues. Okay, so, so there's a political, a, a protest tradition and a political orientation to black media that has existed uh, for hundreds of years in this country. Um, the challenge that we face comes in ownership. Um, you know, there's a difference between Black targeted media, meaning that you have Black hosts, you, you know, talk about Black culture, um, but the owners are not Black. Uh, and the power doesn't necessarily translate when you think about who's making decisions. And, and um, that independent voice, the unfiltered voice, the priority of not necessarily having to serve a corporate interest really does make a difference in the content. It just does. Um, and, and it makes a difference in terms of people feeling as though they can push a certain agenda forward or chart a certain path forward when they don't have to answer to somebody above them who may or may not care about that. Uh, we, I, was, I didn't dig into it too much, but I don't know if you're on Clubhouse. Did you, did you hear the whole like controversy about Clubhouse with the and ownership, yeah, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah, people like, were like, oh, yeah, people were furious. Yes, there were like 20 rooms on Clubhouse because it was this idea of Black people made Clubhouse pop it. Because that's just what we do. We define culture. We lead. And other people make the money. Other people make the money. It's not the person getting the check who's rich. It's the person writing the check who's rich. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so even your highest paid talent in a white owned media company, still, that's not they're they not uh, the wealthiest in the room. We need to be in positions of ownership. And I'm pretty sure I read the stat. It was a quote the National Association of Black Owned Broadcasters. But I believe 11,000 commercial radio stations in the country out of 11,000, only 180 are black owned. 
180 out of 11,000. So that's about 2%, which doesn't even reflect our, you know, population. Demographic, yeah. Demographic of, you know, us in, in the U.S. And um, there was a, a really powerful piece written by, I, I want to remember her name, so I'm just going to look at my phone, uh, Sarah Lomax Reese um, from WURD Radio. And she talked about how during the Capitol insurrection, you know, a lot of the black targeted TV channels were just playing reruns and sitcoms um, and what it would have meant to, you know, see a different type of programming. And again, I understand why that happens, even with, you know, the Grio TV in our first months, we're just going to be playing licensed programming because we got the station up and that was like, that's the, that's the order of things. Our original programming will come later. But the point, the point is that people who are in the position to do the original programming and to be responsive to Black audiences don't necessarily have that incentive. Mm. And media shapes how our kids see themselves, how we see ourselves, the information that we are exposed to, the conversations that we have. I think it was Malcolm X who said, he who controls the messages of the media controls the message, you know? So, so yeah, there's power in media. That's why it's called the fourth estate. And if we are just working, if we are just the talent, then again, it's, it's that analogy of the plantation. It's like, who really is owning us? Who is owning our community's agenda? Uh, social media has disrupted that a bit, but again, these platforms are still owned by white people <laughs> that we're on, you know, that we again populate with our creativity and talent. And so we have to think about ownership always. And it doesn't mean non-participation in black targeted media that is white owned. I don't believe in that, but at the end of the day, what are we building at the same time? Mm. And so um, it's hard. It's hard. Nobody is giving out handouts. <laughs> people, you will, you could build something and people don't want to let you in. You know, they're not trying to play fair. Hence Byron Allen's lawsuits and some of the things that he's alleged that he's seen over the years being in the industry. But man, we got to try. We have lost ground. Yeah. And at the least, we got to gain some ground, you know, and then have a conversation about what's next. Yeah, I, you are, you're saying everything right now. Um, you are preaching right now. And I think, you know, I always try to remind peers and colleagues, it's like, just because you're seeing more diversity in storytelling does not mean that the, the diversity in storytelling is owned by those who um, live in that diverse space, right? Um, and so, you know, I remember in 2012 when we all were like celebrating Scandal um, and celebrating Shonda as we should have. Um, and we were so excited just to see that representation in TV, but still um, when we're talking about true ownership, you know, there's just so many different conversations um, on various different types of media that we need to be pushing and, and really questioning and really kind of like sh share the numbers, right? Just kind of like how you showcase the radio stations. It's like, why is this the way it is? And, and what is blocking for this to kind of progress further? Um, and, and even as we were celebrating Shonda, Shonda was dealing with some BS because remember- Didn't want to give her Disney tickets. <laughs> remember? <laughs> like, what? 
This Shonda rhymes like you. The queen of Grey's Anatomy. You don't want to give her a Disney ticket? <laughs> oh, like you can go on vacations because this woman is giving you content and you don't want to give her tickets? Like just don't, you know, it's. <laughs> yeah. And it's usually, and I, always tell, and I always tell people, I said, it's usually not the big things that break people. It's the smallest little mm -hmm. things that push people over the edge because that literally is kind of like the last straw for folks. And so when I, when I read that story, I was just like, whoo, um, if people don't really understand that, I hope they, they, they start to think about it um, because it's real. Um, you, you mentioned the insurrection and I do want to kind of get that in before we close out our conversation, you know, uh, people are saying on social media the three Wednesdays of, of 2021, right? You know, and it's again, like we're just thinking about the first three Wednesdays of the year. Um, there has been a lot going on. Um, and, you know, we have gone from uh, insurrection uh, at the Capitol. We have gone through a, a second impeachment of a sitting president, first time in history. We have gone through the swearing in of a new president um, and the swearing in of the first black South Asian female vice president. Um, we are dealing with multiple crises, uh, including a global pandemic, uh, racial injustice, economic downturn, the list goes on and on and on. Um, and you are trying to cover it all <laughs> and trying to keep your sanity um, in, in doing that. Uh, I, I guess, you know, rather than like in particularly going through all of the events, what are you doing, Natasha, to maintain self-care during this time? Um, you have been very vocal about, you know, centering your health um, and making sure that that is uh, a focus for you and, and making sure that you are, you know, equipped to kind of handle the heavy lifting that you have to do. What advice do you have um, or suggestions that you have in maintaining self-care? So self-care was definitely essential this month for all of us. Um, it was already essential because we're living through an unprecedented time. Uh, this pandemic has really just, you know, stripped, stripped bare uh, the inequalities that exist in our society um, and also made real like what's important not being able to hug my mother for almost a year. It's like, that's not what I went into 2020 thinking I was going to be dealing with. Um, my, my father having to go to chemotherapy by himself because visitors aren't allowed. That, that's not what I thought 2020 was going to be like. So the problems um, and the challenges are mental. They are emotional. Um, for, for many, it's financial seeing contracts evaporate, uh, you did all the right things and you know everything you had planned for your business just out the door. Uh, th these are devastating times. So you have that. <laughs> then you have America just acting a fool, just, just going. Plum, She's showing out. <laughs> but you know, I have to say the way that black folks processed it uh, on the internet it was kind of funny. I mean, because it was like, okay, they, that's them going crazy, right? That's that's not us. Now, of course, there's a gravitas to this conversation because there were black lawmakers up there who could have easily uh, been killed or hurt 
Um, there were black police officers, Eugene Goodman, right? Hero, American heroes, saving lawmakers by taking this angry, hateful mob and distracting them. So, and then of course the black custodial workers who had to come and clean up the mess the next day and be exposed to COVID, which we know was probably, you know, running rampant in the building. So, so even as we like joke about it, you know, on this like internet culture level, black people, we built this country. It, it is our country. There's no separating <laughs> the disrespect to the capital was disrespect to us. And it is something that we would still have to clean up some way, somehow, right? Isn't that funny? So um, it was it was something that I was uh, processing. I wasn't surprised by it. That was the other thing. Many of us were not surprised by what we were seeing, but there was still something painful about seeing that ugliness in 2021 after everything that we've been through and everything that we are already trying to survive, seeing that that America would, would take it to that level, right? Um, it, it's just an ugly reminder of the two Americas that have always existed. Now on the flip side, <laughs> we have the inauguration, which still happened, uh, which you know we all kind of held our breath for a second, like, is this gonna happen? And it did. So, okay, that's the best of America, showing you that even when an angry insurrectionist mob shows up, uh, ultimately democracy was saved, thank goodness. Um, but we see the first, okay? Amanda Gorman's poem, like, whew, gave me chills, right? It's, it's symbolic, it's performative. We understand that this is ceremony, but it's, it's ceremony that, uh, wouldn't have been possible 100 years ago, 200 years ago, right? So, so representation is there. And I think that this administration is being responsive to the voice of the people. Um, people can debate whether it's happening fast enough <laughs> or not, but you can't deny that the power of Black Lives Matter activists uh, talking about systemic racism, you know, in an inauguration speech, like, eh, you know what I'm saying? We, we don't really see that a lot, you know, so there's. And it's it, incredible to see how people have normalized that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, this is not, this is not normal. This is not something that we've I, seen before. I wouldn't have even imagined something like that five years ago, um, you know, let alone three. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. And the executive orders for one of the first executive orders to be signed to be a review of systemic racism within agencies across the government and requiring an action plan to you know, uh, revise policies or to figure out how you're going to uh, move forward in a more equitable way. And that's being led by Susan Rice. I know that that headline maybe isn't as sexy as you know Trump's impeachment trial, but these things are happening, right? <laughs> um, and, and so, I just, I, I just, I understand people's skepticism, maybe even some of the cynicism or the idea that we must always kind of sleep with one eye open and you know never get too comfortable. But don't discount the power of your voice and influence. And Black people delivered Georgia. We delivered Georgia. There would be, we delivered South, the South Carolina primary to Joe Biden. His 
his presidency depended on black people. So when you realize your power, when you realize that you are the deciding vote, you got to move differently. And that means moving beyond just saying, oh, the system doesn't work for me, which I don't think we all do. I think some people do that. But moving beyond just that base level of criticism and saying, what is our agenda? Okay, so what are we going to ask for since you know you owe us <laughs> this election? You know the power that we had. We made Donald Trump so mad. This man tried to call every election official he could to overturn the Georgia results. He could not stand it. He could not stand it. He like got himself impeached <laughs> trying to overturn the will of the people. He could not accept it. And that's how powerful your vote is. Mm. So what are you gonna do with it? Mm, mm, mm. Um, Natasha, uh, if you were to think about the little Natasha, uh, the Natasha who was planning to go to Harvard University and, and you know, had big dreams and you know, was trying to figure it all out and, and what she wanted to do, what advice would you give her? What advice would you give her um, to prepare for all of the adventures that she had in front of her? I think I would just tell my younger self or anyone who's at that the stage that um, I was in as I was trying to you know, think about my future, uh, that you have what it takes and you are not an imposter. You know, you're, you're not an imposter. Uh, we are given messages from the time that we are young that make us feel as though, you know, it's somehow exceptional to achieve or we're maybe a little different or we got lucky, somebody did us a favor you know, whether it's affirmative action or whatever it is, don't question yourself. Don't question yourself at all. You know, believe that you come from the best and you can be the best. And I think with that mindset, uh, the way that you approach life is so different. And it's something that, you know, parents can instill, but if your parents don't instill it, that's okay. You can still cultivate that way of thinking. Um, but yeah, we, we definitely deserve to be uh, where we are in that much more. So, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Natasha, for this conversation. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you and congrats on the show. Oh, gosh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 